Hello, and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of August 12th, Cessation Plan. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss some key recent developments in the SOFR to LIBOR transition, as well as what remains to be completed if LIBOR is truly set to go away by the end of next year. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creeter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Dan, 2020 was expected to be a very crucial year in terms of development for the SOFR-LIBOR transition, but some of those plans got derailed, obviously, when the pandemic descended upon the globe and some resources that were meant to be used to start preparing the financial system for the end of LIBOR have been redeployed elsewhere. There has been some thought over the past few months, us included, that the end of LIBOR will be pushed further into the future. However, it appears that the regulators remain adamant that LIBOR is indeed going to go away by the end of 2021. We've had representatives for both the FCA and the ARC here in the United States come out and affirm that timeline in just the past few weeks. So, Dan, it does appear that things remain on track and probably the next big domino to fall will be the release of ISDA's fallback protocol. Yeah, things remain on track for LIBOR to go away by the end of 2021. And the FCA recently made an announcement that it could even be announced earlier, as soon as the end of this year. So you're right, regulars do seem very adamant that this is still going to happen as it was expected. And at the end of the day, it really is just up to the FCA. Into the protocol, it's largely a formality, and it's going to be the revelation of something that we already largely know, which is that legacy LIBOR contracts in the derivative space are going to fall back to referencing SOFR plus a fixed spread based on the five-year median spread between LIBOR and SOFR. So a couple things to unpack there. First, you mentioned a potential pre-cessation trigger by the end of this year, coming in the form of an FCA announcement that market participants are increasingly expecting to be a pre-cessation trigger. To be clear, that doesn't mean LIBOR is going to cease publication at the end of this year. LIBOR is going to continue to be published no matter what happens between now and the end of 2021, as it has been produced for the past couple years. What the pre-cessation trigger would then do is it would freeze the credit spread adjustment according to ISDA's fallback methodology as of a certain date, potentially the date of the announcement or potentially as of the end of the year. And there is reason to think that ISDA would do this. Recall in their original protocol proposals, ISDA included a potential transition period, which was a one-year-long period that would sort of smooth out the transition from LIBOR as determined by the panel bank and a LIBOR as determined by the credit spread adjustment. It's not exactly the same thing, but ISDA had interest in a year-long transition period. And by announcing a pre-cessation trigger at the end of this year, they're sort of creating a transition period, if not exactly the way it was originally proposed. But second, Dan, you talked about is the protocols. And I agree with you, barring something unforeseen and truly surprising, the finalization of ISDA's protocol is just going to be affirmation of what we thought already. But when we combine the two, the release of the protocol, as well as a potential pre-cessation trigger at the end of the year, what does that mean for the value of potential LIBOR fallbacks? 
Yeah, so just to emphasize, when LIBOR does go away, contracts which fall back to SOFR will eventually reference SOFR plus a fixed spread. And that's based on the five-year spread between LIBOR and SOFR. And so what that spread ultimately sets at is going to depend on a couple things. First, it's going to depend on the timing of LIBOR cessation. And second, it's going to depend on the LIBOR-SOFR spread between now and the announcement of LIBOR cessation. So Bloomberg, as the calculation agent for these fallback spreads, has created a series that estimates what the fallback spread would be if LIBOR were to go away today. And so you can pull it up on your Bloomberg terminal and find that today this fallback spread for the three-month U.S. dollar tenor would be about 26.1 basis points. Of course, this is going to change over time as this five-year median window shifts. So we can estimate using a couple different assumptions about the future LIBOR SOFR spread, what the spread would eventually settle at given different timings of LIBOR cessation. So if it sets at the end of this year, we can be reasonably certain that it's going to set at around 26.3 basis points. Now, further out into the future, it's going to depend more and more on the future evolution of this LIBOR SOFR spread. And if we use futures values alone, and assuming that the LIBOR SOFR spread is going to behave exactly as futures predict, we see 26.3 basis points again at the end of this year and 24.4 basis points as of the end of 2021. However, futures generally underestimate the potential for LIBOR to spike. And this LIBOR-SOFR spread has an asymmetric relationship where it's generally relatively tight for long periods of time. And then due to unforeseen shocks, it can really widen out. So if we model this relationship using a little bit more randomness than is in the futures market alone, we find that there's an asymmetric risk to this spread setting on the wider side of that 24 and a half basis points. And so we think that it's most likely that the three-month spread settles around 26.3 basis points as of the end of this year and closer to 25 and a half or 26 basis points if LIBOR cessation is announced at the end of next year. Well, that's extremely interesting to me, Dan, because if I'm looking at the Bloomberg screen right now, I see that a five-year U.S. dollar SOFR versus three-month LIBOR swap is trading somewhere around 22 and a quarter basis points. So that means that theoretically, I could enter into a swap today paying SOFR plus 22 and a quarter basis points to receive LIBOR that will become SOFR plus 26.3 basis points following LIBOR cessation in 2022. So I'm picking up basically four basis points in riskless profit by entering to that swap. So that's something very interesting to note. But it's also we're saying at this point that it's not riskless. It would be riskless if we knew that 26 was going to be the spread, but we don't know that yet. We only think that based off of the best knowledge that we have now. But there are a few uncertainties that could change that around. You talked about them, but chief among them is uncertainty over when exactly LIBOR cessation happens. You mentioned that 26 basis points is our estimate if LIBOR cessation happens at the end of this year. But if LIBOR cessation happens at the end of next year, we're looking at a spread of close to 24 basis points. Suddenly, 22 basis points doesn't look all that compelling in a five-year swap. And then if we go further into the future, we can actually have the LIBOR fallbacks fall into the teens and you'd actually be losing money. So we look at these fallback values as really a baseline value that contracts shouldn't diverge meaningfully away from. But there is going to be some divergence here in the next few months as we find out a few things. One of the most important things we're going to find out is what exactly is operational certainty worth? And by that, I mean, for market participants that have heavy positions in LIBOR swaps, 
having certainty regarding transition is going to be worth something to them. So if they're able to recoup on their portfolio or able to put on basis swap overlays that synthetically remove transition risk, that's worth something rather than going into January 1st, 2022 and potentially LIBOR no longer appearing and having your contracts all hardwired to their fallback. Now, theoretically, we know what that's going to be. Theoretically, we know that LIBOR is going to be sold for plus 26 basis points or whatever the fallback is determined to be. But are your systems equipped to handle that? Or will we show up on January 1st and suddenly all of the swap valuation systems are way off because the fallback didn't go smoothly? We just point this out to say that operational or transition certainty is going to be worth something. And so you're going to see these values sort of diverge away from baseline fallbacks until you reach a point where either one, a speculator comes in and says, wow, look, if this is risk-free arbitrage profit, I'm going to put on this trade. Or two, someone on the other side says, okay, well, at this point, it's worth it for me to try to hedge away or recoup on my portfolio at these levels because it's so advantageous compared to where our projections for the fallback values are. So it's going to be that calculus over the next 18 months, and we don't know how it's going to shake out, but 22 and a quarter basis points on a five-year for LIBOR swap looks pretty attractive from where I'm sitting right now. Now, Dan, I want to ask you another question that we've received somewhat frequently on the ISDA protocol, so it's worth mentioning here on the podcast, is are market participants going to sign the protocol? Yeah, we think the short answer is that most market participants will. There's going to be a lot of push from regulators, especially for some of the larger market players. We've seen already indications that a lot of these corporations plan on signing the protocol. The ARC has already endorsed it, and the chairman of the ARC has encouraged its members to all sign the protocol. So our base case is that most participants will sign this protocol. Of course, there will be some outliers to that. Yeah. I mean, to your point, a recent survey from risk.net showed that only 7% of market participants plan to not sign the protocol. And those participants will have to do something else in terms of renegotiating their contracts away from insufficient LIBOR fallbacks. And we think 7% might actually end up being high. I mean, I'm sure that people don't want to sign a protocol they're unfamiliar with, but once that education process moves through and everyone understands the protocol and the benefit you receive from signing it, I think that we'll see a near 100% signatory rate just because it makes sense. And once it becomes a market standard that the big banks have all moved to, it would make sense for everyone to sort of follow suit. And with the protocols then in place, the derivatives market, I think we could say, is basically 100% ready for transition. And of course, there are still some uncertainties, and we're going to see how certain portfolios value operational certainty like we talked about before. So there will still be some key developments. But at this point, the derivatives market is looking mostly ready for transition, and that was sort of to be expected. But What about the cash market? It's been what everyone has highlighted this entire time is potentially the problem child for transition by the end of 2021. And a key issue there in particular has been a lack of a term rate. We all know the term structure for SOFR is the ultimate end goal of ARC's pace transition plan, which is estimated for completion by the end of 2021. But Term SOFR is based off of futures volumes. They have to be sufficient enough to ensure that term SOFR is representative of market conditions on any given day, as well as is free from the ability to be manipulated by any large market participants. And the main sticking point so far has been that nobody really knows exactly what robust trading volumes are. And so we don't know what to be targeting. But Dan, you've looked into that question a little bit recently. And what have you found? Yeah. So just to put some numbers around it, the Average daily trading volumes for SOFR futures 
is around 100 to 200 billion dollars per day at this point. And that's between both the CME and ICE and one month and three month futures. And this is down from the peaks when volatility picked up in March and volumes were at around 300 to 400 billion. And it's also down from last September when repos spiked and volumes touched as high as 700 billion on one day. And so you've had a slight slowdown in volumes, largely because now that rates are at the zero lower bound and the Fed has indicated rates are likely to stay there for the foreseeable future, there's less demand for interest rate hedging in general, and therefore less natural demand for SOFR futures. So looking to what a target range would be for SOFR futures volumes, it's first important to think about how IOSCO characterizes volumes for a valid benchmark range. And so IOSCO looks at the relative size of the underlying market as a function of all contracts referencing it. So in other words, the bigger the market that references term SOFR, the deeper the volumes are going to be needed to create a viable term SOFR. And we can use Fed funds as a corollary here. In the same way that Fed funds is a much larger market referencing trades that make up the effective Fed funds rate, the contracts referencing term SOFR are going to be significantly larger than the volumes that make up term SOFR, which are SOFR futures trading volumes. So specifically looking at the Fed funds example, the volumes comprising the effective Fed funds rate, and that is the interbank lending, they've averaged about 7 to 8% of the volumes that reference the effective Fed funds rate if we're looking at the total Fed funds futures volumes. And extrapolating this ratio to the SOFR market, if we assume that the roughly $8.3 trillion LIBOR cash market is going to eventually reference term SOFR, we arrive at a range of around 400 to 500 billion in average daily trading volumes that are necessary to create a term SOFR rate. And this is if we assume that floating rate notes will continue to use SOFR compounded in arrears as they've demonstrated the capability to right now. So the short answer to your question is, I think once we get to a consistent 400 to 500 billion in trading volumes, we'll be closer to a viable term rate. And so while we're not there yet, it's going to take a sustained increase in volumes. It does seem like we could get there in a year's time. Yeah, I agree with you. It does seem like that's within range, especially when we think about some events on the horizon that should potentially increase so for futures volumes. Obviously, the main one among these that we'd be referring to is the Big Bang, scheduled for October 16th, when discounting of cleared swaps will move from Fed funds to SOFR, which should put more natural SOFR-denominated assets or liabilities on balance sheets that will then need to be hedged via SOFR futures or swaps. So we should see those volumes start to pick up. There is also another option available to ARC where they could also incorporate swaps data into the term SOFR construction, which would obviously give you more volumes if you do that. It complicates the calculation a little bit, but it's certainly not impossible. Sterling Markets with their new reference rate, Sonia, has already taken this step. So that's another option available to ARC if they were to need to increase volumes further than just futures. So I agree with you. It does seem like it's within reach. It seems like it should happen over the course of the next year or so. But that also means that it's going to be a bit of a race to the finish line if the end of 2021 is when LIBOR is truly going to go away. Even if term SOFR becomes available 
by the end of next year, we're still going to have insufficient fallback throughout the cash markets. And now we're starting to see some potential solutions to that problem. And specifically, here we're talking about legislative solutions, such as the one ARC proposed to New York state legislators that would work effectively like ISDA's contract that would override insufficient fallbacks in cash market LIBOR land contracts with more sufficient volumes. Now, this legislative solution features a few key challenges, specifically political willpower to get it done. It's unclear who's going to champion this legislation. It doesn't seem like one that's going to be very popular among voters, particularly given everything else going on in the country right now. Secondly, it's not clear that the legislation is even constitutional. There are clauses in the Constitution protecting the amendment of financial contracts by lawmakers. So the constitutionality of the legislation is a bit murky. And third, there's also questions over jurisdiction. Would the New York law apply to all financial contracts? Probably not. It would have to be passed by other states or potentially even federal lawmakers for it to be truly binding. So it's definitely an uphill battle, the legislative solution, and one that I wouldn't put much hope into solving the insufficient fallback problem in the cash market, which is why I think the more important news that we've received recently is an expansion of the FCA's powers to produce what we call synthetic LIBOR and paves the way for, quote unquote, zombie LIBOR. Yeah, Dan, I agree. And we've talked about this since the beginning of this process, that really the only thing that is going to solve this cash market problem is time. And most of these contracts that reference LIBOR are relatively short dated. So if the creation of this synthetic LIBOR were able to prolong the life of LIBOR and allow something called LIBOR to continue to be produced for another year or two beyond this 2021 deadline, I think it would go a long way to solving these issues that don't otherwise have a very viable solution, as you just discussed. So how would synthetic LIBOR be set? I mean, it could be set however FCA deems most appropriate. It would clearly seem that just setting LIBOR in line with ISDA's credit spread adjustment of so for plus whatever that fixed credit spread ultimately ends up being, it could be whatever FCA deems most appropriate. But with the synthetic LIBOR in place, LIBOR going away by the end of 2021 becomes a lot more realistic. From the very beginning, our concern and primary sticking point was these cash market products with insufficient fallbacks. And as more and more time went by and those contracts weren't renegotiated, and indeed more new contracts were being produced without sufficient fallbacks, the problem grew larger and larger. Synthetic LIBOR or zombie LIBOR fixes that problem. And then the end of next year suddenly becomes very, very realistic. I'd simply make the minor distinction that if there is a synthetic LIBOR or a zombie LIBOR, then LIBOR isn't really gone. So from the very beginning, we've been saying LIBOR is unlikely to go away by the end of 2021. That meant if they were still printing some form of synthetic LIBOR. But if we're going to draw the distinction between synthetic LIBOR or legacy LIBOR, then yes, the end of 2021 was always a very realistic target. It's just, do you consider synthetic LIBOR still LIBOR being published? And that's what we have considered so far. Dan, I'd like to close the LIBOR transition here just to talk very briefly about the potential for a credit-sensitive benchmark to coexist alongside SOFR. Obviously, the two leading candidates right now are the Bank Yield Index and Ameribor. And we've had a third candidate emerge recently from a group of professors called the Across the Curve Credit Spread Index, or AXI, that would sort of be an add-on 
to Sofer. We discussed the details surrounding them in our written work. If anyone's interested, please feel free to contact us and we'll point you in the right direction that goes into the detail on the differences between these credit-sensitive benchmarks and how they're calculated. But just from a very high-level overview, what are your thoughts on the potential establishment of a credit-sensitive benchmark and would one be valuable to the market? So the, the issue with these benchmarks is going to be the same. Each of them reference in some way, shape, or form unsecured three-month generally bank lending transactions. But the problem with these, as is the problem with LIBOR, is the underlying volumes are just going to be too light. And I think that while such a benchmark would be extremely valuable in creating some sort of dynamic credit component, the light volumes is going to make it really difficult for any of these to be created and comply with IOSCO's principles and eventually become a standard benchmark. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, personally, I think that there is a place in the market for a credit-sensitive complement to SOFR, and it would serve a clear market function. I mean, we had 22 bank executives sign a letter sent to regulators saying that they need a credit-sensitive benchmark. But the light volumes just makes it seem unlikely. If there is any chance, it would have to be a rate that would get buy-in from a regulator that would have the power to shape the benchmark and have the power to work alongside the construction of the benchmark to ensure that it had sufficient volume or work with regulators as a way to remediate this known weakness in the rate that would still allow it to be a recognized and functioning credit-sensitive complement to SOFR. Perhaps it's even just a spread to SOFR. And, you know, getting a little theoretical here, but maybe IOSCO's principles for benchmarks would be a little more lenient to something that worked alongside SOFR instead of something that existed independently of SOFR. So for those reasons, if a credit-sensitive complement were to emerge, the bank yield index, I think, has shown the most problems. There has been communication between regulators and the IBA on the bank yield index, so at least there seems to be some potential there. But I agree with you. I think it's less likely. Anything else to touch upon in the SOFR LIBOR transition before we wrap things up? I think that just about covers it for now. This concludes Macro Horizons. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. 
It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise it constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.